You're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, hello, Lionel. Hello, Daniel. Or, 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 or Lionel, is it time for uh, is it time for us to revive Lionel learns Italian? Buongiorno. Oh. <laughs> um, well, I can cope with that, Daniel. Yes, I've picked up a bit more over the last uh, couple of years, but it's actually I was looking at this this morning. Three years since I was at the Giro. 2019 was the last time. 2020, I couldn't travel to because of all of the COVID restrictions and the quarantine requirements. And more or less the same again last year. Last May, still difficult to get in and out of the UK without having to quarantine. So this is my return to the Giro. The Giro will will not recognise you. A lot has been made of your physical transformation, but it's true. The Giro won't recognise you. Lionel, we are joined by... Usually, um, I'm the only fake Italian on the podcast. We're joined by another plastic Italian, Brian Nygaard. Um, Our listeners will remember Brian from, well, numerous appearances on the podcast over the years, particularly at the Giro. They will also, uh, many of them will know that Brian has worked extensively in cycling over the years, first as a um, head of communications, Lionel. I'm not going to, Brian, I'm not going to call you just a mere press officer. You are more than that, head of communications for Team CSC, Team Sky, Orica, Green Edge in that in that team's various incarnations, and he was also team manager of Leopard Trek, team manager, team principal, Brian. I I can barely remember at this point myself. It's been more than ten years actually this year. Well, anyway, um, Lionel, Brian, um, Brian, welcome back, and you. indeed you are going to be a, a a pillar, a key fixture in our. Giro coverage this year because um, you're in the hot seat on the well in the second half of the race. Um, you're joining up with us in Reggio Emilia, more or less the halfway point in the Giro, and you will be accompanying accompanying me all the way to Verona, won't you? Yeah, very excited about that. I did uh, parts of the Giro last year, and and not just because we're sitting here right now. It's by by a mile. It's, it's really my favorite bike race. Because and we'll be talking about that as well today. It's it's so much more than a bike race. I'm very happy to to share that experience with you once again. Well, Daniel, we'll be off to Budapest next week, won't we, for the start of the Giro, the much delayed Grande Partenza in Hungary. Um, we had our virtual stages in Hungary, didn't we, during our Giro in 2020 during the the, the depths of lockdown. And I suppose it will be poignant for us because it will be... A plastic Giro, a plastic Giro conducted (laughs) partly by a plastic Italian. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. And it will be poignant for us, won't it? Because this will be our first Grand Tour without Richard Moore. And, uh, well, we'll be be travelling around Italy. We'll be channelling the Spirito di Buffalo all the way, won't we? There'll be be some... um, uh, some memories of our time covering the Giro with Richard, no doubt, as we travel on. Um, but we're looking forward to covering the race, nevertheless, aren't we? I mean, you know, um, let's not forget Richard's passion was bike racing and talking about bike racing. And so we will try to uh, channel some of that passion. I mean, sometimes we have to lift our lift our energy levels a bit, don't we, Daniel? But we will, we should do so uh, when we get to Budapest and then hop across to Sicily and then travel up the 
mainland of Italy. And as you say, Brian, I don't know whether it's a coincidence that you're joining us in Reggio Emilia because that's the food stage of the Giro. We'll probably talk a little bit about the food later on. I mean, for me... I think we'll definitely be talking about restrictions on um, Brian's wine budget. That's been a major (laughs) topic of conversation already in the planning for the Giro and I'm sure that's going to be a running theme. Indeed. I mean, I just take umbrage with this because surely all 21 stages are food stages, but uh, we'll come to that later on in this episode. This is our free-form, freewheeling uh, Giro d'Italia preview, isn't it, Daniel? We're going to look at the the route a bit. We're going to look at some of the contenders. We're going to hear from Simon Yates, who, well, he's got unfinished business with the Giro d'Italia, hasn't he? Because in 2018, he came very close to winning it was leading going into the final weekend and then collapsed really under pressure from Chris Froome on stage 19. This is his fifth participation in a row at the Giro and was on the podium last year, finishing third, looking to go a couple of steps better this time round. But we'll weigh up some of the overall contenders. We'll look at the sprinters and we'll cover any other business. And we may well hear also from Chiro Scognumilio, our very good friend from La Gazzetta dello Sport and from Laura Messica, our colleague from our Spanish cousin podcast, El Cycling Podcast. Um, she will hopefully be giving us a steer on some of the Spanish and South American contenders. Should we get to the meat and gravy or the pasta and ragu of, the, of this year's Giro, Lionel? Um, the route in particular? Well, I've boiled it down into three distinct weeks, really. First of all, we're kicking off in Hungary, and I actually really like the start of the race. They've switched around. Um, the, the convention usually in, in recent years, well, for as long as I can really remember, is that the opening time trial would take place on the first day, but they've switched it round. The road stage comes first, and it's not just a run-of-the-mill sprint stage. There's a five-and-a-half-kilometer climb up to the castle in Visegrad. Uh, hairpins on that climb will look spectacular and will decide the first pink jersey of the race. And then the time trial also has a sting in the tail the following day. It's only 9.2 kilometres long, but the last 1,400 metres are significantly uphill. I say it's in Budapest, but actually it links Pest to Buda, crossing the Danube. That's two of the three cities. Ryan, I'm not sure... I'm not sure if you remember, but I think you rode this time trial virtually. <laughs> I did. I virtually rode it, Daniel, on uh, the RGT platform during our Giro. And that sting in the tail, even virtually, uh, was significant. Yeah, I was grinding you were up a, there. You were a different rider then, though. I was. I was. I'm, I'm a little bit better going uphill these days. Talking of uphill, well, the first real engagement will be when the riders get to Sicily. Stage four, uh, we revisit Etna. 22.8 kilometer climb at the end of the stage takes in bits of the road from 2018 uh, when Esteban Chavez won uh, but I think it's a different way up this time round isn't it is that right Daniel yeah there are various different iterations of Etna and, and the Giro has sort of tried its best to to see and use all of them over the last few years this is um, both sort of halves of this ascent have been used before but in um, a different configuration um, but it's, this is one of the more difficult ways of Etna. In the past, we've seen um, stages up Etna sort of neutralised by, by headwind in particular. And um, on this occasion, I think we will see a bit of a first sort out of the general classification. We certainly will. And then the first week concludes with three really difficult looking stages in the row. Stage seven to Potenza has a profile like a sort of 
a big chain ring up and down all day four and a half thousand meters of climbing could be really really dangerous for the gc riders caught out of position or um, not paying attention stage eight starts and finish in napoli and it's got four laps of a 19 kilometer circuit with a, a little climb on it as so kind of a mini world championships almost and then stage nine to blockhouse a really really difficult stage that will bring back memories of 2017 when Nairo Quintana won but there was that terrible crash wasn't there when the police motorbike was parked just off the road Wilco Kelderman hit it Geraint Thomas and Mikel Lander uh, for Sky both went down as well and that more or less ended Thomas's Giro so that's week one that was the day Lionel wasn't it when um, you and I went off in search of some local delicacies and came back with a gingerbread man um which well how, how would we, we describe this it wasn't a gingerbread man it was a gingerbread woman um would you like to elaborate lionel um well it was a gingerbread woman made of gingerbread it was a perfectly fine gingerbread it was a bit soft actually i but, remember didn't have much of a crisp if anyone remembers but if anyone remembers madonna's famous corset in when did she wear that of course um, some... that was during her jean paul gaultier period <laughs> correct correct um <laughs> this gingerbread woman was was similarly sort of presented and there was a there was some kind of local legend um linked to this there was some story as to why um this was a local speciality which i've i've forgotten but i certainly that's one of my more vivid memories of that day we weren't so the the word you're looking for is torpedo <laughs> torpedo <laughs> Well, week two is very much a transitional week, isn't it? There's uh, plenty of opportunities for the breakaways. The stage to Turin looks quite interesting. Another up and down one, and it's got the Superga climb on the route. Um, a tricky stage on the final Sunday with a long 22-kilometer climb, but uh, a relatively gentle one. And then the final week, well, that's where the GC riders are going to have to be at their best because it is climbing all the way. It's hard day after day. There's the Mortirolo, Lavarone, there's the Paso Pordoi and Marmalada on stage 20. I mean, that's a brutal stage. And then the final stage is a time trial in Verona going up and over the Torricella Hill, which featured on the World Championship Road Race Circuit in 99 and 2004. Um... I've not mentioned the sprinters at all, but it really is a Giro of diminishing opportunities for the sprinters. Probably three good chances in the first week. Uh, the third stage in Hungary, then Messina before we take the ferry back to the mainland. We always get caught out on that stage, don't we, Daniel? We, we spend most of the evening on the ferry back to the mainland. And then stage six could also be a sprint. Uh, the middle week, stage 11, the usual billiard table stage to Reggio Emilia. That's where Gaviria won in 2017. Uh, barely, uh, well, barely a, a bump in the road on that day. And then not very much going for the sprinters in the final week other than uh, the Tiramisu stage to Treviso. Still gassing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Super Sapiens, and for the duration of my two-week stint at the Giro, I'm going to be monitoring my blood glucose levels using the Super Sapiens system. 
I want to see what impact the stresses and strains of covering a grand tour and perhaps more pertinently my fueling regime have on my energy levels day to day. Now I have used Super Sapiens before towards the end of last summer and the readings were such that I investigated further and well the net result of that was that I was advised to lose some weight which I've done. I'm around 20 kilos lighter now than I was the last time I used the Super Sapiens system and so I'm interested to see what that does to the actual readings. The first thing to do is to get the Abbott Libra Sense sensor out of the box and apply it to your upper arm which I've just done. Um, there's an applicator and you just line it up with the sensor and then position it against your upper arm and press until it sticks the sensor to the arm. Now there is a needle included of course because that's how it takes the reading just below the skin and I suppose I'm above average when it comes to squeamishness and below average when it comes to pain threshold and so it's not a process I particularly relish the first time but it is very easy and well painless it's not like having an injection that's for sure so once the sensor's in place I then stuck the um, the patch over the top which just protects the sensor keeps it dry when I'm showering that kind of thing and that sensor's good for 14 days I've paired it up with the app so I am ready to go and I'm talking now around about a week before I head off to the Giro because I want to have some baseline numbers so I can uh, compare what my readings are doing when I'm off on the road. So there we are, ready to go. Well that's the headlines, what do we make of the route? Very little time trialling, lots of climbing at the end but it's that first week that really looks interesting. Yeah just in terms of bare statistics chaps, um, 52 1,849 metres of climbing um, off the top of my head um, compared to <laughs> 50,026 at the Tour de France. Um, 51,631 uh, 51, at the Giro last year. So it's more than... It's the, the, the most climbing we've had in the Grand Tour for a couple of years, actually, because the Vuelta is slightly less as well. Um but, you know, as we're always told by riders and teams, it really depends how the how it's raced. Um, you know, that determines how hard the, the race actually becomes. But I do think it is going to be a really difficult Giro. I mean, last year, the, the weather was a huge factor, wasn't it? And it, it, to a certain extent, it, it seemed to ruin the first week or the first 10 days in the sense that there were, there were riders who particularly seemed to suffer in the bad or cold and wet weather and you know my hope and partly for selfish reasons because I don't want to be schlepping around southern Italy in torrential rainstorms as we have done a few times in the last um, few years but I, I do hope that we get decent weather um, on that front I, I don't know whether this was a conscious decision um, RCS have limited the the number of very high passes we've had over the last few years and you know we've talked as well about um, changing climate being sli slightly to partly to blame for this. Um, we've had various cancellations, stages being shortened. We had it last year where we had the stage which was um, sort of invisible, the phantom stage to Cortina when we didn't see Egan Bernal's um, race-winning attack because the Rai helicopters couldn't get in the air. Um, so I hope we don't get too much of that. But um, RCS, I don't know whether, as I say, this is conscious, but they've limited the number of times the race is going over 2,000 metres. I think there are only two passes um, over 2,000 metres. We'll hear from Team um, Bike Exchange, um, their team manager, uh, Matt White, or Direct Sportive 
uh, Matt White about precisely that later on. Um, you know, there have been Giri when there have been 10 or 9 or 10 um, passes, climbs over 2,000 metres. So altitude is not going to be such a big factor. But I do think it's, it's going to be really difficult. And as we'll, we'll go on to talk about in a minute when we, when we delve sort of specifically into the various chances of the GC con- contenders, I think it looks very, very open. Um, there are six, seven, eight riders there who have good general classification pedigree, who have all the the attributes to go well on this route, but also who have question marks, who by no means have sort of unblemished records of, of always performing well in Grand Tours. There's no Pogacar, there's no Roglic, and in cycling nowadays when those two are missing and also Bernal is missing, then it's very difficult to sort of get your, get your bearing sometimes and, and know how everyone stacks up against each other. I think it's a it's when you spoke about the climbs just before I think also the the distribution of the climbs how you know how the riders will have to prepare for this Giro because there's really hard racing literally on the first day but definitely in the first week if you compare it to other Giros where the sort of tension was building there'll be specific uh, I think really challenging stages where the GC would potentially start to unravel itself and uh, you know, you never know about the weather, especially, in, you know, in the Giro in, in the early May. But I think there's some of those stages in southern Italy where you, you normally wouldn't expect it to be a big GC clash could become really crucial, especially the stage seven to uh, Potenza, which is up and down all day on, on probably not extremely well-paved roads. I, I, you know, I have a horror scenario of that stage turning into... Um, you know, remember the stage coming into Frascati in 19, where Dumoulin crashed out, hurt his knee. I think stages like that could cause a lot of damage, even if it's not an uphill finish. I mean, just on that line, um, Lionel and Brian, you know, the, the traditional configuration of the Giro up until a few years ago was to have one summit finish, a fairly benign summit finish, somewhere down in the south. Um, I noticed on the route, actually, of stage seven to Potenza, we've got Monte Sirino, and that was one of the places where the jury often used to finish, have the summit finish of the first week. Um, Davide uh, Rebellin won there, in, or he got the pink jersey there in, I think, 1996. And um, well, it was actually Davide Rebellin, he, he was probably, how old was he in 1995? 35. Probably already coming, to, coming towards the end of his career. Um, but um, he was sort of hailed, when he did that, he was hailed as the next great hope of Italian cycling that people thought he was going to dominate. That didn't happen. But yeah, Monte Sirino was, was, was um, somewhere where they would have that summit finish. It's, um, this year, it's one of many climbs and, and really three, I would say three genuine general classification days uh, in the first nine. Um, so that's Etna, which is a summit finish. And then the state of Potenza, you mentioned, um, Brian, 4,500 metres of climbing that day, which pretty much measures up to any day in the Tour de France last year. I don't think there was a single day over 5,000 metres of climbing in the Tour last year. And then finally on stage nine, another bona fide mountain stage, 5,050 metres of climbing with the summit finisher blockhouse. So, you know, make no mistake, there will be riders who, of those seven, eight, nine um, GC contenders that we mentioned or who we'll name later um, probably half of them if not more will be out of contention after nine stages I would say. Well what about the contenders then Daniel 
when you look back at the last few years of the Giro, it's been an, an Ineos Sky uh, run of success, hasn't it? Egan Bernal, of course, not riding, uh, well, wouldn't have probably been riding anyway because his season would have been built around the Tour de France, but then he had that awful training crash at the start of the year in Colombia. Back on his bike now, though, some pictures of him back on his bike, which is good to see. Then the lockdown Giro just before that, Theo Gagan-Hart, we understand he will not be on the start line either, had intended to be, but has had a couple of bouts of illness this spring, the most recent being at the Tour of the Basque Country or Itzulia, and uh, so he's been on uh, medication, antibiotics to treat that, so not on the start line here. Chris Froome, of course, in 2018 and 2019, Richard Carapaz riding for Movistar then, but now the leader of Team Ineos and on paper, one of the two clear favourites to me, the other being Simon Yates. I don't know what you think about that, chaps. Well, the, the bookmakers, Lionel, before we go any further, they have Carapaz as the favourite. Um, he's the sort of resounding favourite, really. Followed by Simon Yates. João Almeida is, comes next. Mikel Landa, Superman Lopez, Emmanuel Buchmann. Um, we, we're now going down to sort of 12 to 1, 14 to 1 with... Buchmann and then Dumoulin but that's that's by no means um, all of the contenders you've also got people like Wilco Kelderman Jai Hindley um, Hugh Carthy Peo Bilbao um, even Richie Port you could argue I know he's, he's not nominally going there as a leader but um, he's certainly someone who if um, Carapaz was was not to be was was to fall ill or or have issues. Richie Port would be uh, an able deputy, I would suggest. And what about the French? What about I forgot? Roman Bardet, Roman Bardet of DSM. I was about to mention him. And and Guillaume, Guillaume Martin, Guillaume Martin of Cofidis um, could be interesting as well. Has built his season around a, a good strong tilt at the Giro, possibly because there's so few time trialing kilometres to put him on the back foot. Um, but I suppose that applies to a few people but it does look very very open uh, perhaps Carapaz and Yates just ahead in terms of the the, the pedigree um, Vincenzo Nibali must mention him I mean this this is the, the tail end of his career really isn't it but uh, lining up as a veteran alongside Miguel Angel Lopez at Astana but it's one of those grand tours where um, really you look at it and think well you can make a case for any of those sort of you know lower half of the Premier League contenders having a really good Giro and certainly making it onto the podium I mean doing a, a Jai Hindley or a Wilco yeah, Kelderman I, say, I, could even, I could see a Frenchman on the on the podium of, of this Giro and I think the combination of of the I wouldn't say that's an outright favourite but a, a combination of the group of favourites and how the race course is this year I think it's it should lend itself to fantastic racing actually right from the start yeah, it, it might, in the absence of the, the Slovenians in particular, it might look a little bit decaffeinated, um, a lacking maybe a little bit of luster. But actually, um, I think it, on paper, it, it, it does sort of present itself as a very exciting Jira. But I think I don't necessarily agree because if, if you look at what makes a good race, the fact that, there, that neither of the Slovenians are here and the fact that, I mean, I know that Ineos is coming in with probably on paper at least the strongest team the the more open the race is and and this is as open as it's been for a long time the better racing there'll be you know even if you say you if you're underwhelmed by by the lineup I, you know you you i think you'll be overwhelmed 
proportionally by the quality of the race. I completely agree with that. And I think it's a thing that makes the Giro so watchable year after year is that um, it hasn't been sort of processional. And when you think back even 10 years ago, and uh, I've actually been uh, making an episode of Kilometre Zero about the 2012 edition of the Giro, you know, who would have thought that a race between Ryder Hezidal and Joachim Rodriguez would be, you know, an, an absolute five-star edition of the Giro? But it was. It went all the way down to the final weekend. Uh, it was a really great um, balance between a climber and um, a, a kind of a, a more of a diesel-type rider. They had very different skills. And I think that's when the Giro is at its best. Even in more recent years, um, you know, we look back now thinking of Tom Dumoulin as the star name he is. and uh, But the, the Giro was really where he began to sort of cement that reputation as a, um, as a really fine Grand Tour rider. And I think well, even the year Carapaz won. That was a, a really interesting addition that elevated Carapaz from a kind of a you know, in, an interesting rider into a Grand Tour contender and well, he, obviously he grew, um, he, he winner. He grew out um, of, uh, so of I'm, the rivalry between um, Roglic and Nibali and everyone was waiting for the big showdown and, and he just basically caught them napping because they were looking too much at each other. So I think the, the anatomy of, of how interesting this race will be is not always down to the big favourites lining up. Carapaz's was the classic, as discussed a few weeks ago in relation to Dylan Van Bala, the classic Fagianata, as uh, Riccardo Magrini would say on Italian Eurosport, the pheasant, the pheasant move, just sort of clipped off, didn't he? Um, halfway up the, it was the Colle del Nivolet, and no one really paid any attention. And then um, he sort of, well, he saw everyone else in the showers, didn't he, with two-minute advantage, which he then built on and... And and that was that was pretty much it. I mean, I take exception to the phrase decaffeinated anyway, Daniel. Surely it's a sort of the the to denigrate an edition of the Giro. It would have to be the the flat white Giro, surely. I don't know. Yeah, the almond milk flat white Giro. Yeah. Shoot, shoot du peloton, cycling podcast team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2 cycle computer, which did us proud on the opening nine stages of our Tour de Cosse, the ride around Scotland that Simon and I recently did, visiting each of the Scottish football grounds. I plotted the stage routes on the Hammerhead dashboard and then uploaded them to the Karoo 2 and then we followed the yellow line every day and I have to say the mapping was extremely effective and efficient. We weren't just following unfamiliar roads, we were following cycle tracks and bits of the National Cycle Network that weren't on the road and so we were jumping on and off the road and yet the mapping really worked seamlessly. I couldn't give it a higher score, I don't think. The other feature I really love about the Karoo 2 is the climber feature. Now this is, I've described it before, as being like a digital roadbook on the handlebars because it gives you the distance to the top of the next climb, the gradient that you're on, and you can see where the steep bits are coming up, where it shallows out, and then it tells you the distance to the next climb. Now previously this only worked when you were following a predetermined route that you'd chosen to follow on the Karoo 2. But... One of the features with the Karoo 2 is the regular software updates. And when you switch it on, uh, it will say, oh, there's an update available. Click yes. 
and then updates the software. And the biggest jump forward, I think, is that the climber feature now works when you just go on a random ride without following a route. And for me, that's a game changer because I love the climber feature. I love all that data while I'm out on the roads, but I don't necessarily always want to follow a set route. And so this is the perfect solution. If you'd like to check out the Hammerhead Karoo 2, you can get a custom color kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with every purchase going to hammerhead.io and using the promo code cycle at checkout. That's a custom color kit, so you can match your Hammerhead to your bike or your kit and a premium water bottle with the purchase of a Karoo 2 at hammerhead.io. You just need the promo code cycle. This is a limited time offer and we will put the details in the show notes. Well, I said right at the start that Simon Yates has unfinished business with the Giro. I think that's certainly true. Let's not forget he has won the Vuelta, so he is a Grand Tour champion in his own right. But coming back to the Giro, uh, fifth attempt to try and win the race. And Brian, he's a rider that you know very well because uh, you were together on the team in one... Well, it's the same team, but it had a different name back then. You'll have to remind me of what the team names were when uh, you were working there i mean you're you're frowning um i'm always sort of two or three years lagging behind when it comes to the team names but it was was it orica scott mitchelton scott uh, era that was when the um the the yates twins kind of came uh, to prominence orica 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 g'day um mitchelton <laughs> the last year i i worked for the team was in 2016 and and that year was called orica bike exchange the, the year after was the last year it was called orica and then it changed into mitchelton just to refresh your memory and of course it all unraveled on stage 19 for simon yates when chris Froome took full advantage with that extraordinary long range attack and yates tumbled down uh, not just out of the pink jersey and off the podium but all the way down to 21st place overall but as i said won the vuelta later that year and keeps coming back for more at the giro but Brian, he's a rider you all know very well. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I followed his career from the beginning and, and obviously still quite sort of following specifically him and Adam quite closely because they're riders I, I know quite well. Um, I remember that stage in the, in the Giro in 18 and, and, you know, unfortunately for Simon, people keep, you know, rehashing it. You know, there's the two elements to that. One was that it was probably one of the best Grand Tour stages in, in my lifetime, it was an absolutely incredible stage. Everything was turned on its head. Uh, it was sort of the type of racing you would imagine would have happened before there was even TV. It was sort of just one of those mythical stages, but it was obviously also very much so the downfall of, of Simon's hopes to, to finish the job that he started so well. But he, I think he's still one of the, the best riders around. He hasn't turned 30 yet. He's, he's won the Welts. He's been on the podium uh, in the Giro. He's, he's won, I think, seven or eight Grand Tour stages. The, I think there's just there's a perception of him because of that 18, even because, even in spite of his podium last year, that people just sort of see him as the guy who, who came close. And I, th- I, don't, I think that's a little bit disrespectful when you think of what he did in the same year in the World Cup, which was extraordinary. He was by far the best rider uh, that year. And I think he's, you know, I think he was quite mature very early. I don't really see any sort of mental change in him. He's not obviously the one that gives much away from from his his inner dealings with himself. He's, he still definitely to me seems like the same person, but he has a wealth of experience now, which I think is the biggest difference between him back then in 18 and then now. 
Brian, before we hear from Simon, I'd just like to get your take on two big decisions that, well, he's made He's made one of them this year, um, and it's a decision that he's also made in the past, and that's to target the Giro d'Italia, and also to remain faithful to the team that he's been in since he turned professional. There have been opportunities. I mean, obviously, other teams have wanted to sign him. Um, there was a, a, not so much an, an opportunity as it seemed like an an imperative a couple of years ago when the team was struggling to find a new sponsor and uh, we had the whole um, Manuela Fundacion fiasco and that was more or less the, the time at which his brother Adam decided to go and, and, and explore pastures new. Simon didn't. Um, he has stayed in the same team. So just um, what do those two things tell us about Simon Yates? A couple of things. Uh I think it's quite uh, significant that him and Adam are now riding on different teams. Uh, and yeah, I don't think they developed into being each other's biggest rivals because I think Simon is more a grand tour specialist than Adam is. And I think now that the collaboration that Simon has had basically since he's turned pro with um, Matt White, I think it, he, he really puts a lot of faith into that and it's, it's reciprocal. You can see how well they work together. So I think that comfort zone that he has in that team is extremely important and he has you know such a privileged position he doesn't have to fight for his goals and he i think he still has the last word on what his program needs to look like in many other teams if he was signed as a big rider at what would probably be a higher salary they would say well you need to challenge yourself at the tour and i think he's made a wide wise choice not doing that these years because it's i i've struggled seeing him beating either Pogacar, Bernal, or, or maybe even Roglic in, in that race. So I think he's, he's, he's exactly where he wants to be. And I think that the surroundings there, for now at least, have brought out the best in him. And one element that, you know, luckily I don't think people sort of remember anymore, he, he did have a, an anti-doping infraction in that team where, where it would have been an obvious uh, place in time to, to part ways. But they didn't, and I think that that mutual trust that has been since then has has definitely confirmed to him and to the team that they are really the, the right match for each other. Well, chaps, he certainly got high hopes for this Giro d'Italia. Um, as we are recording this episode, he is in Spain at the um, Volta Studias. And that is um, going to be his last race before the Giro. Um, he hasn't done too much racing in the last few weeks because after very successful Paris-Nice, um, where he won the final stage, um, he had to pull out of the Volta Catalunya um, a, a week or so later with illness. And um, Asturias, as I say, will be his last opportunity to really sharpen his form for the, for the Giro. And it was while Simon was on his way to Asturias that I spoke to him precisely about the Giro, why he's going back and what he hopes to get from this year's race. How are you generally? If you were, if you were a mobile phone battery, what percentage would, would you be at? <laughs> um, well, I've had, a, I've had a long day of travel, actually, because I've just... Um just arrived here in Asturias. Um, so I just spent all day traveling actually. So I'm a bit, a bit uh, depleted at the minute, but uh, I'm sure I'll be okay tomorrow. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, I've been, um, been there in a training camp in Andorra with the rest of the team, which went well. And um, yeah, I think things are looking good. Um, you never know, I think, as always, till, uh, till you really start racing. 
but uh, yeah, we'll see this. Uh, we'll see this weekend. I, I saw some quotes from Matt today. He said the goal was to win uh, Asturias. I mean, people might imagine that you just there that the result wouldn't really matter um, this weekend. That you got bigger fish, fish to fry. Yeah, I mean, uh, why do you can get a big song? Play some songs <laughs> when uh, Geo gets close, and uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I also want to try and win. Um, but I think the the main goal is just to to really fine tune uh, my form and get back some some race rhythm. Um, and if the win comes with that, then uh, happy days. Um, if not, I think. Uh, I mean, me personally is not too big of an issue. <laughs> Maybe Wadi will uh, tell you differently, but uh, yeah, well, like, I mean, we'll see how the weekend goes. Um, like I said, we've had a good training camp and uh, just excited to start racing, really. And generally, Simon, I mean, obviously these things are prepared over several months. Um, you, we know you had the, well, you had the great week at Paris, the great ending to the week, and then Catalonia, where I saw you said you possibly shouldn't have done it. Um, it was in hindsight, but how would you assess generally the, the preparation over a few months since the winter? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, um, I mean, in the end it was quite a complicated recovery from the, from the illness there that I got, um, I originally got it in Paranis or the end. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I felt okay. Um, going into sort of Catalonia, not, not, not really 100% healthy, but, um, I felt like I was getting better every day and it's a race that I enjoy. So I, I know I wanted to race. Um, but I think that's just, unfortunately it, you know, I just kind of lingered for, for longer and longer and longer. And, uh, I mean, of course I, I pulled out of Catalonia in the end, um, and then had to, you know, still, uh, take some days off or, or almost a week off actually just to really, uh, recover from, um, from this 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 illness, um, which I don't really know what it was. It wasn't COVID because I did a lot of tests, um, just some sort of uh, bronchitis. But it was just like I say, it was just lingering for forever, basically. And um, you know, I hope. Uh, I mean, uh, had too much effect on the on the training camp there. I had an Andorra, but it definitely pushed things uh, back a little bit. And you've only got three days of racing now. Um... Is, is there any slight concern that you might be a little bit undercooked as far as racing is concerned and you might just have to sort of find your way in a little um, bit? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe. But I mean, that, that, that's, why, that's why I'm here, to, to make sure, to, to see, how the, see if the, you know, everything's, in, uh, everything's in order. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a, I can't tell the future. We'll see, we'll see on the weekend. Um, and not not to keep you know bang on, but I mean the rest of the training camp there in Andorra was 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 good. I did, did some really good work, a lot of hard yards. Um, so we'll see. I mean, you, you get this question all the time about you and the Giro, why you keep going back. I mean, some people will talk about unfinished business. Other people, people probably Italians, will talk about a love affair you've obviously got with Italy, the Giro. I mean, how would you sum it up yourself? I mean, I know that you. I was curious when you said in one of the team videos that this might be the last time for a while anyway, but how would you sum it up yourself, you and the Jira, why you keep going back? So, have, you, have you seen this video again then? <laughs> I, I, I've not seen it yet. I've, I've seen the second one. one yet. Someone, I, else, someone else said it. 
I can't wait to see. So this, you've got the second one where your mum says you don't like pressure. And then you've got the third one, which <laughs> came out today, where you, your girlfriend is talking about you being embarrassed about the 2018 Giro, which I can't wait to see that one now. Right, right there you go then, yeah. Okay, because I've not seen this, I've not seen the third one yet. Um, but that, that quote obviously comes from this video, I think, because I've, I've seen the trailer. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've uh, how many years has it been now? It's going to be my fifth one on the bounce, fifth year on the bounce. Um, you know, I put a, I put a lot into this race. I put a lot of uh, been a lot of sacrifices, a lot of hard work. Um, I've had a lot of rewards too from the race, and um, but I just think it, I think it's time to move on, um, regardless of how it goes, and just uh, try something new um, or not new, just something you know, you go to the tour or something. But it's not not just about the Grand Tours for me. I think. Like I miss doing tour of the Basque Country and these races that I that I can't do because I'm preparing for the Giro. Like they're some of my sort of favourite races that I really enjoy. Um, and for the last five years, I've 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 missed these sort of races. Um, so it's just a bit of that, bit of that really. I mean, you never know. You never know what happens uh, in the future. And I, mean, I could be saying all this all this jazz, and then next year I'm I'm back again. Um, but that's just my my general feeling at, at the moment. And I mean, just thinking back to last year as well, you obviously finished it really strongly. Um, the start, I remember you had a, did you have some physical problems in the first week, but also there was the weather was absolutely awful. I mean, when, when you were thinking back on that race over the winter, were you broadly pretty proud of yourself and pretty happy nonetheless to have finished on the podium? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, uh, I mean it's not a... <laughs> Maybe some people will tell you differently, but it, it's it's not easy to to arrive on the podium of any Grand Tour. I mean, it's uh, for sure one of my uh, greatest accomplishments accomplishments in the sport. Um, but like you say, yeah, I had some. I mean, I, I'm not here saying uh, I would change the race or anything, but I had some um, problems with my hamstring in the the early part of the race, so I I just felt like I couldn't give 100 uh, percent that first uh, week week and a half. Um, you know that that's that's how it goes. Um, you know the race is three weeks for a reason. You need to be good for for three weeks. So uh, I gave my best, and uh, that's that's what we came up with. So for me, that was a. I mean, podium is a really good success. Just three last things, Simon. Um, most people are saying that Carapaz, even if it's not you or um, for, I don't know Lopez, it's definitely Carapaz. A lot of people's favourite. Um, he always strikes me as a really tenacious rider, um, a guy who you probably, you're going to have to sort of beat him and beat him again and again and again before he kind of gives up. Just talk to me a bit about the experience of riding against someone who is like that. I mean, have you, do you know what I mean? That um, He's a bit like a dog with a bone. I don't know if you, that's how you feel about about him in particular. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, it depends on the situation of the race. I mean, if you're leading, of course, it's going to be... Uh, very difficult to control somewhere like that. Um, but on the other hand, if I'm also uh, behind um, and he's also behind or someone like this, I mean, it's uh, it's good for both of us to be to be aggressive. You know, it's, uh, it can work two ways. So I think we, you just got to play the situation as it comes, really. Um, I mean, there's a lot of... Um, you look at the course, it's, I mean... I mean, uh, there's only a uh, very slim amount of kilometres of uh, time trial in this year. So, um, I mean, the race is going to be won really on the road, I think. Uh, you never know, of course, but uh, I think the 
I mean, there's going to be a lot of aggressing racing, you know, over the over the, over the three weeks. How will you feel when you arrive in Budapest? And I guess you know there might be pink balloons at the airport, and you know you you, you realise you're at the Giro. What describe that feeling to me? Just, just just to get to the start? Yeah, just, to, just to when, start you, when you get to the start of the Giro, you know, like you, like I say, there's always, a, I guess there's a moment for everyone where they sort of, you know, it all starts to feel familiar again. And I don't know whether, you know, you get butterflies or how will that feel yeah, to you to I mean, be there? Uh, for me, for me, it's always a bit of a bit of a relief, like a bit of a like, oh, finally we're here sort of thing, you know, like yeah. <laughs> been thinking about this race all winter, all, all, uh, all, all spring, whatever. Um, then we finally get here and it's like, oh, finally, we can sort of start the race. So for me, it's always a bit more, I'm always more excited than anything, anything else. Um, of course, you always have those sort of nerves um, going into the race about how you know, how it's going to go and, and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I think for me, it's more just excitement to sort of sort of get started racing. Just to just to go back as well. Like, I mean, the, the rest of the team, and they were, or not the rest of it, most of the team were there um, in Andorra there from a training camp. And uh, the feel like that sort of uh, nervous, nervous energy, you know, that good, that good nervous energy that, that you know people are, you know, they want to, they want to get racing and they want to, they want to start. So I think we're um, we're in a good place. I think so. Yeah, we'll, but we'll see as as, as always. And just last thing, Simon. Um, what's the image that comes into your head when you think of wearing the pink jersey when you wore it? I mean, I've spoken to a couple of guys about this recently. One said, "Well, it was the way that the crowd always picks out the pink jersey. They may not know your name initially, but you know that everyone's just looking for the pink jersey." Another guy said he was just checking himself out in the reflect shop window reflections of the whole day. Um, <laughs> you know, couldn't believe he was in the pink jersey. But what's the thing that? comes to your mind when you think of those days you spent in the pink jersey um so i will always remember the day not to always bring this up but i will always remember the day 2018 when i actually lost the jersey on whatever stage it was and i was um you know i was applauded by the by the fans on the side of the road more than any other day i had done whilst wearing the jersey the the noise just coming up the final climb. Now I was already twenty minutes down or something. I was running with the with the groupetto or whatever, and just the noise was was something that I will never forget. These these guys just 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 scream my name. Um, you know they they just really enjoyed the the way we went about the race that year, and uh, I think I'll never forget that. You know, obviously still in the pink jersey at that moment, and just um, yeah, just rolling to the finish line as best I could at that point. <laughs> Well, chaps, I found it interesting there that Simon talked about it being his last Giro, um, or certainly for a, for a while. He seems to have made that decision, and I, I think that well, it shows a certain degree of, of pragmatism. Um, I think, and it also made me wonder whether um, it will take away some of the pressure that he's not treating this as a, as a kind of holy grail. That he's not obsessed by this unfinished business. That he's going to sort of and beat himself with this objective and this unfulfilled dream until the end of his career. Um, he, he might be slightly liberated by the knowledge that actually, you know, he's going to move on to other things after this. And I also found it interesting, you know, him talking about other opportunities, other races that he wants to revisit, that he hasn't been able to re- revisit. I mean, we're so guilty, and we've said this 
um, over the past few months on on numerous occasions. We're so guilty of always looking through the looking at races through the prism of success or failure, meaning victory or or, or defeat. And and in the case of someone like Simon Yates, even you know, I asked him the question there. Um, how did he look back on third place in last year's year? And he said, well, actually, I was very happy with it. But um, very often, a, a guy when a guy comes in as a favourite or, or nearly a favourite, we sort of assume that anything but victory is some kind of failure. And, and that, that isn't the case. I fully agree. And I think Simon is, is being very honest when he says that. I think it goes into the mental preparation of any bike rider before a big goal that they just, and he says that himself, he just wants to be as good as he can possibly be. And if that takes him to the level where he won, say the Welter in 18, he's going to be extremely competitive. But I think mentally any bike rider at any race or, or big goal, they, they need to obviously keep in mind that they have no control of how good the other guys are going. They have no control of, of how, what kind of lineup the other guys show up with. And I think if you mentally start to worry about that, I think you'll lose a lot of your own focus. And I, one thing that I think is so remarkable with both Simon and Adam, that they are, and they were at a very young age, some of the most serious and focused athletes I've ever come across. And I think that mental strength has served Simon well in also coming back. You know, he's, he's won a lot of races, but he's also seen, you know, some difficult times in his career, but he's always able to, to focus and come back potentially even stronger. And I think that that lesson is probably extremely important for him going into this Giro. I don't think he sees it as an ultimatum, but I do think that he really wants to give it one last go. And you know, coming back to, to just be a stage winner or, or around the podium, I really don't think it's enough for him. Well, one thing is for sure, chaps, um, Simon Yates and, and Bike Exchange have certainly prepared um, fastidiously for this Giro Italia. Um, they always do. They have this sort of custom, as a lot of teams do these days, of, of the direct sportives really um, doing recons and, and familiarising themselves with every metre of the route, and they have done indeed um, this year. A huge part of that preparation, as you mentioned a minute ago, and a huge part of why Simon Yates is still at that team, Brian, is Matt White, the head sports director at Bike Exchange. And I also spoke to him this week about Simon Yates' preparation for the Giro. Matt, you get asked this every year with Simon and the Giro, um, but just recap, explain to me again, where, where th this sort of determination to keep going back to the Giro, win the Giro maybe, or certainly, yeah, I mean, target the Giro as his major Grand Tour of the year. Um, how much comes from him? How much comes from you? How much is comes from the fact that the route suits him? Um, what, what, just just explain that to me a bit. Yeah, look, well, it's a combination of all of those things. Uh, now, first, we need to see the routes of the Giro and the Tour. Yeah. And... and before you make any sort of decision. The other one is you know, what's driving Simon. It's no use sending Simon to a race. Where, you know, he, he's got to be motivated and really put, really motivated to put in the effort to go after one of these big targets. And so once you've seen the course, see the lay of the land for the season, and uh, then we can then we discuss it, discuss things with Simon, and uh, we 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 uh, go after what we want to chase and where our best opportunity is to win as a team as well. And this year, if there was one thing that you 
have just have thought that you needed to address with Simon um, in terms of a one weakness that's maybe tripped him up in the last couple of years in in Grand Tours or in the Giro in particular. Um, what what would be the focus? Um, what what has been the focus um, if, if there has been one? Well, I think for for us the focus has been we've got we're on new equipment. So there's been a lot of it. There's been a lot of effort gone into work around his time trial bike, his area, his position. We're we're on very fast equipment this year, um, and that's about it. I think you know we're running a similar template as we've used in the past. You know, Simon knows how to prepare for this race. We know where he should be at at certain times of the race, and and what you know what we've seen in the Giro in the in the last few years is that you know like most professional athletes, Simon is human. He has bad days. He has good days. And it's just about managing the bad days and hoping that they're not in uh, in key moments. But uh, how, how how can you manage that? This is by gain, gaining consistency in your training and consistency in uh, and tweaking the template that you used in the past. Yeah, I was going to say because uh, um, maybe people imagine that when a bad day does happen on a Grand Tour for any GC rider, and it happens. I mean, it happens so often, doesn't it? I mean, pretty much, um, apart from you know Pogacar in the course of a season, everyone will have one really costly day in the Grand Tour. I mean, people will imagine there's a big sort of post-mortem that goes on after that and, you know, all the physiologists, the coaches get together and say, well, what, what caused this? How do we avoid it? But you're saying it's, it's not really like that. It's more a question of when it does come managing it. Definitely, definitely. Look, we, we sat down last year. When you look at last year, and you know, Simon lost more, probably more time on that one stage, on, on one climb, than he, he did in the whole Giro to you know, to Bernal, and it, you go through that. And you, you, was it the equipment? Was it the was it the clothing? Was he too cold? Was he this? Was that? And you know, we didn't come up with a, an answer besides the fact that he just had a bad day. Uh, because you know, is it the cold? Well, it's not the cold. Is, is has Simon got a weakness racing in the cold? Well, the answer to that is no. Yeah, you know, he, he obviously he's maybe a little bit more fragile at the Giro just because his weight is at its probably lowest of the year. But you know, Simon Simon did win this year in Paris in freezing conditions on the last day. He yeah, you know, he has won a stage in Paris in the snow before. So it's not like he he is from Northern England. He does, he he does live in Andorra. So he, he's not he's not uh it's not like he's not exposed to cold weather conditions. So you know what. And, and the thing also with that last year's Giro performance, you know, that was a day, and then 48 hours later he popped back up and was the strongest guy in the last week of the race. So it was just a bad day uh, because if, if it was a, if 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 he died a thousand deaths in that last week from that that point onwards, well then we obviously that's we've got his preparation wrong. Or we, we, there's been something there's been something wrong in the build up. But you know when you have one when you finishing second on the Zonklin and then a few days later have a bad day, then a couple of days later you're winning stages and doing career best numbers in the last three to four days of the Giro, then it's, it's you know, no one has a concrete answer for why we had a bad day last year, except that it was a bad day. Um, Matt, can you just tell me about, well, two things, altitude and recons as far as they pertain to Simon. Um, yep. Roughly, roughly what's he done on both, on both counts and how does it compare to other years? Uh, altitude. Well, he is very fortunate in the fact that he uh, he's got a base in Andorra at altitude. So we have done camps in Sierra Nevada in in uh, in February with uh, with a, gr- a core group around him, and then we've did it. We've just completed our last altitude camp as a team, or the, the climbers in altitude as well. And uh, 
the beauty of uh, the majority of our guys having residency up there is a lot of them can just stay at home. And so we, we, we'll, have a serv- we'll have a service camp, but they just stay at home. And they, we, we just have a meet-up point in Soldeo, and the group goes from there, and uh, they do their stuff. But the beauty is it's, it's not an extra stress where they're packing up and moving away from home for two weeks. They're just staying at home and, and meeting as a group and being serviced as a group. We had a chef up there and a, and a physio and a, and, a, and, uh, and massage therapist and mechanic just to service them better. But um, so altitude, he's had a he's had a very he's had a couple of really good consistent blocks at altitude. Recon, um, he's only going to recon uh, two stages, just because it didn't work in his in the time frame. Uh, yeah, we didn't want to. We don't like taking guys away from home for nothing, and we don't like taking guys and uh, big big journeys aren't productive. But as a as a team, between the three sports directors who are going to the Giro, we've done nearly every single mountain stage. So, you know, we haven't reconned the flat stages, uh, but between myself and the other two sports directors who are working with me on the month, we've we've seen everything else. Everything that's possible, everything that's possible without snow. <laughs> um, can you remember which one Simon's done? Yes, he has done the stage 19. I took him there after Catalonia, uh, the stage that pops into Slovenia and then pops back out again. And then he will be doing Blockhouse next week on the way to Budapest. Right. Um, and, and just thinking about the route, Matt, I mean, it strikes me as one of the hardest... I mean, the Giro is always super hard, but it strikes me as one of the hardest I've seen um, in the sense that, well, apart from those very flat days, I mean, there are so many days, two days over 5,000 metres of climbing, couple 4,500. I mean, would you go along with that, that it is pretty brutal? Yes. Uh, the, the thing that stands out for me is I think the overall climbing metres is huge, but that that's because of just what you said, you know, that, there is not many days of five or 600 metres of climbing, those dead flat sprint stages. So there's a lot of just solid days at two to 3,000 metres, and that, that adds up. And, yeah, we've got some mega days. We've the 5,000, the blockhouse stage. There's a, there's a tricky stage on stage uh, seven to, Poden- to Podenza, which I, I looked at in, in March, which is probably a breakaway day, but it's got 4,500 metres. I think the first 50K... I think the first 50k of the stage is on the on the beach, so and it's it's a part of Italy we we don't often use because you know usually when you're down in Calabria you're either going up up or down the coast. Um, uh, Blockhouse is very heavy, and then uh, but the other thing that stands out is there's very very limited racing at altitude. Um, I actually think off the top of my head I think we go over 2,000 meters for five kilometers in the whole Giro. Blimey. So I remember, when was it? Three or four years ago, it was the record. It was either 10 or 11 passes over 2,000 meters. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure we do it twice this year only. Okay, yeah, which would be on the Marmalada and that, that day, wouldn't it? It would be that day. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. And I, I remember looking at Bellevue and thinking, and looking at above 2,000, it was only 5K of the whole race. So, so it just means, it's, well, look for... Simon is quite uh, adaptable at altitude, but you know, for some, for the for the altitude natives, your, your Colombians and your Carapats, you know, when they're racing at two three, that's a, they've got a very distinct advantage when you're going up real high, and that that has that that has been removed in this year's Giro. 
well, Daniel, preparation is only half of the battle, really, when it comes to the Grand Tours. And this spring has been extraordinary because of the number of illnesses sweeping through the peloton. Of course, we're in this, well, I was going to say post-COVID age, but we're not post-COVID yet, are we? We're still seeing um, COVID cases and uh, the, the hangover from COVID cases affecting riders, but also there's been a lot of kind of more regular sickness in the peloton, lots of riders ill, uh, missing training, missing racing. I mentioned Theo Gagan-Hart at the start. Um, He's been ill uh, for Team Ineos, but he's by no means the only one. Esteban Chavez, who we've also mentioned for EF, he has been ill and will not be riding for EF Education, leaving Hugh Carthy as their sole GC hope. But this, um, this phenomenon is quite extraordinary, whether it's because riders have been, you know, training and living in almost isolation for so long and suddenly now back out in the real world and and so many more contacts all over the place in airports and and traveling around and and what have you now exposed to um, viruses and and things that they had been not exposed to to the same extent over the past couple of years. Mask wearing has dropped in the general population, of course. I was talking to Jonathan Vorters this week and he said that... um, they were one of the last teams to go back to uh, sharing rooms at races and training camps. Now race organisers are not allowing um, single rooms, probably for budgetary reasons, so most teams are back to sharing rooms again. But they thought they'd been really clever back in the um, training camp phase over the winter because they saw reports of riders falling sick at training camps and thought, well, we've, um, we've dodged a bullet here, so to speak. But they've been kind of clobbered by the same phenomenon now a little bit later on uh, where it's actually been impacting on their racing and so they've had a lot of sickness through the team and that's something that everyone will be sort of keeping their fingers crossed about i guess and it's something that uh, once the, the stresses and strains of a grand tour start to take their toll you know it's something we can't necessarily know too much about because it's it's always the thing isn't it teams want to keep secret if their riders are just a little bit under par yes lineland well, we all know the reality of, of Grand Tours and particularly um, Grand Tours where there's a large or long transfer involved from, well, we've had this at the Jura before, you'll remember Lionel and when the start was in Israel. And you think of the circumstances, the conditions in which that's sort of carried out and arranged, um, you know, on Sunday night. The riders will all be sort of piling into the same airport and, they'll, you know, um, there, there might be sort of buses involved sort of shuttles as well because some of the team buses might not be there and everyone will be sort of crammed together and you know you you wonder about the sort of conditions um that that might create and the risk that that might create as well and um and also as you touched on Lionel just the the number of riders whose preparation has been in some way affected by illness this year is just staggering and in some cases we're not even aware of the full extent of of um, the, the setbacks that they've suffered. I mean, just thinking of some of the other contenders, you know, Tom Dumoulin is someone who was a former winner of the Giro and I think a lot of people would love to see him back at the level he was at in 2017 when he did win. Um, cycling almost seems to have moved on since then. It almost, he almost seems to belong to a different era and, and that race seems to belong to a different era when you think that that was, you know, before the emergence of Roglic even, let alone... Pogacar. Um, Dumoulin was ill at the Volta Catalunya. He's not raced very much. Um, 
I believe that Jumbo Visma are, are pretty sort of circumspect about his chances. He's been at a training camp in in Tenerife for a while. It's gone okay. Um, it's gone okay for his teammate Tobias Foss as well, who's also had setbacks of different nature of crashes. Um, but they are going to the jury in hope more than expectation, um, despite the fact that Dumoulin, after two stages, so there's the time trial on the second day, he might well find himself quite high up on the general classification. But um, Sam Oman is going well at Jumbo Visma, um, I believe, in training. But there are a lot of teams, I think, with those question marks um, over their leaders. Um, you know, we talked earlier in the year about Bora really throwing the kitchen sink at the Giro with Buchmann, um, Jai Hindley and Wilco Keldman. Hindley's had issues in the last couple of weeks with some illness at Liege-Bastogne-Liege. I think he, um, he pulled out at the last minute. So it really applies to, to a lot of them. And I suppose you could say that that's another thing that makes this Giro, well, even more uncertain and even more sort of tantalising. Yeah, you mentioned Bora Hansgrohe there. They've also got Leonard Kamner, who I know is a bit more of a stage hunter than a GC rider. But to me, and apologies again for the football analogy, but this it's like playing four midfielders or to switch it to cricket, four medium-paced bowlers here. They've all, they're all really, really good riders, but is there a winner among the four of those? Uh, I'm not so sure. But I do think that that strength in depth is going to be really key. Um, Ineos are going to have Carapaz supported by Sivakov and Port. That looks strong. Then you've got Bahrain, Victorious, have got Peo Bilbao and Mikel Landa, we think. Uh, Astana, Miguel Angel Lopez and, and the old warhorse Vincenzo Nibali, 37 now. And I do think it's these tandem and, uh, well, in, in the case of Bora Hansgrohe, quartet that, that really offers um, some some interest when it comes to the, the, the GC and uh, does make it hard for the riders who are a little bit more on their own. I know Simon Yates will have some uh, good support from Lucas Hamilton, um, but, you know, Joao Almeida, his teammates are all the kind of stage hunter types, aren't they? Uh, Roman Bardet with Tymon Allensman. I mean, that's a, an interesting-looking pairing as well. And, uh, well, we'll hear from Laura Messica in a minute, I think, about Alejandra Valverde, who we think is lining up at the age of 42 for Movistar. In fact, let's hear from Laura about the Spanish contingent who are taking on the Giro this year. Well, Laura, let's start with Alejandro Valverde and Movistar because this Giro will be his 31st Grand Tour. His first was 20 years ago in 2002, but this is only his second Giro d'Italia, I think. Uh, he won a stage in 2016. Um... But Valverde's lining up for the Giro this time in, well, we think his final year. I mean, we keep saying, but um, until he stops putting a number on his jersey, we, we can't rule him out. Yeah, exactly, Lionel. This is the question we have also here in Spain. But it's true, he's coming back to the, to the Giro after finally being third at the Tour de France in 2015, which was his obsession and the team's obsession. He went to the Giro Italia and he was third in the GC. And after discovering the Giro, almost every year his desire was to ride Giro and Vuelta. But the team always needed him for, for the Tour and they had other plans for him. So as you know, he's very humble, but he always says that he's the one that saves the team's season every year as he did with the Spanish team for years at the World Championships. So in his last year as a pro, apparently, his last year, he's finally going back to the Giro. He's not supposed to ride for the GC, 
but that's something that Valverde has shown he's not able to do. I mean, he, he simply can't disconnect from the general classification. Apparently he was going to do it uh, last year, Vuelta España, where he was playing a different role for the strategy of, of the team, but, but then he crashed out, so, so we, we couldn't see that Valverde. So um, also the situation in Movistar with the UCI point is delicate, no? and their World Tour status is on risk. So. It's a question how Valverde is going to perform or, or to race. Because some voices say that uh, being his, his last season, he should, be, he should take more risk and be less conservative. But then the team, of course, want to, to have that point, you know. So uh, let's see how he's going to face this Giro Italia. And Ivan Sosa will, could, could have a go at the GC. So, still uh, a question, how is uh, Movistar team going to, to face this first Grand Tour of the season? We've been talking about the possibility of Valverde going for the pink jersey on stage one with the uphill finish. I mean, there have been times in his career when this finish would be absolutely perfect for him. I know, yeah, and, and we still, every time we see uh, this kind of uh, stage profile in every Grand Tour, we, Valverde is still one of the favourites. With 42 years old, which is crazy. And I think uh, for sure that that's going to be a, a big goal for him. Let's see if he's in that point. I mean, I mean he has proved that he's in good shape. We, we saw it in the Ardennes Classics. But still, the contenders are really strong and, and younger, maybe more fresh than him. But that would be, I'm sure that would be huge for him as well. What about Bahrain victorious because Mikel Landa and Peo Bilbao are, well, they're always um, riders capable of winning stages or finishing in the top five of the GC, perhaps with a, a possibility of being on the podium. How are they looking? Well, in the case of Michael uh, of Mikel Landa, he's our particular Thibaut Pinot, with all my respect to these super class riders, but he seems like every year he has to overcome difficulties and last year he crashed at the Giro Italian, couldn't finish La Vuelta also. He, he said that maybe he should have taken more time to, to recover from that crash at the Giro. This year he looks in a super shape and uh, he finished third in Tirreno Adriatico, just like in 2021. And he looked very good at Liege-Baston-Liege and held Peyo Bilbao in the Tour of Alps. But it's true that uh, with Landa it's always a um, question mark, that you don't really know how he's going to be. Even f him, he's asking, like, is, is it going to be finally my year? He, he has a lot a bit of his status in the team. But he, said, he says he's not worried about that. And, and maybe actually this can help him to ride with less pressure and, and perform well. And let's hope he's lucky and he avoids uh, sickness and crashes and all this. And see if, if he, we can see the best version of Mikel Landa. And uh, Peyo Bilbao, he's a super good rider. He was fourth at the Giro and and he's uh, riding very strong this year in, in Itzulia, in Vuelta al País Vasco, winning ahead of, um, of Juliana Lafilippe and then in Tour of Alps. I think he's uh, where he wants to be ahead of this Giro Italia and, and maybe we can see him at the, at the podium of, of this Giro, hopefully. 
Well, you're very well connected also with riders from South America. The big storyline last year at the Vuelta was Miguel Angel Lopez and that extraordinary finish to his final race with Movistar where he was lying third overall in the morning and then in the afternoon he was, uh, well, he was in the team car and not, uh, well, we we weren't quite sure where he was for a little while, were we? Um, He's now back at Astana. What do you think we can look forward to from him in this Giro? Well, I think he's also in a very good shape. Um, Apart from about what you were uh, speaking about, the this uh, situation with Movistar. I'm not going to do any spoiler because El Día Menos Pensado, this series of Netflix in Spain is, has been released in the Movistar platform. So I'm not going to do any spoiler, but uh, you understand better the position of Miguel Ángel López in that Vuelta Espana. In that Vuelta España. So it's really interesting. I mean, <laughs> I hope you can watch it soon in Netflix. But, but yeah, I think he's uh, in a very good shape um, and he can, I think he has the trust and the confidence of the team. I think it's a good team again, Astana, Nibali, I don't expect him to, to be riding for the, for the GC. So, and we saw a strong Miguel Angel Lopez last year with Movistar. So maybe now with the full uh, confidence or maybe the, the, the being the leader of the team or at least being everything clear <laughs> for everyone every role in the team i think we can he can he can be there as well up there and lastly richard calapaz who many people think is the favorite for this giro it's been a strange season for him because he was having trouble finishing stage races right at the start but then we saw in uh, uh, in catalonia that he was starting to come good but hasn't raced since then. So we go into the Giro with a few question marks. Uh, We assume that his preparation has been going well, but uh, is there anything you know about that? Well, I I know that uh, Xavier Arteche, his, um, his, um, how do you say it, his performance uh, manager, his coach, has been with him in Ecuador. And and he said after that that uh, Richard wants to win Giro and Vuelta this year. And when you say that, it's, I believe it's because you've seen uh, something in the rider. And I, I agree that he's the, the strongest in that line of uh, favorites for this um, Giro d'Italia. But, but yeah, still we have to see more about him no? in the first days of competition. But... I don't know this year uh, at the Giro, but in La Vuelta with Roglic and Pogacar, it's also a big ambition to try to win that one. So I see that the the team around him is really confident. So so why not? And also with Jonathan Castroviejo and the, well the strong uh, roster of Ineos Grenadiers, I think it's gonna help him a lot. And also Jonathan Narvaez, we were speaking with him. At the um, in the in El Cycling podcast last week, and it's interesting because he was saying that he has finally find his place, found his place um, as a rider because being from Ecuador and and where everyone is um, a climber, let's say he he thought he was supposed to be a climber as well, but finally Ineos has found his place as a. Um, strong um, rider maybe for the classics so i think also he's uh, very confident at this giro italia so i think they are gonna do a difficult race for the others 
Well, as you know, Laura, we don't do speculation or guesswork on the cycling podcast, so I won't ask you who you think's going to win. But if any listeners out there are fluent in Spanish or learning Spanish, check out El Cycling Podcast, um, released weekly during the Giro. Is that right this year, Laura? El Cycling, Post, El cycling Podcast, correct, yeah. We will be doing our specials at the Giro Italia with Joseba Bellocchi, of course. Excellent. Well, uh, you can find that on all podcast platforms, El Cycling Podcast. Thank you very much, Laura, and enjoy the Giro. Thank you, Lionel. You too. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport who are supporting the Cycling Podcast for the seventh Giro d'Italia in a row. They came on board in 2016. It's actually eight if you count our Giro during lockdown, of course. But we're very grateful to Science and Sport for their support. And, well, talk of Chris Froome and his 80-kilometre solo attack on stage 19 of the 2018 Giro just reminded me that that was the kind of launch of science and sports beta fuel on the world, wasn't it? Because James Morton was head of nutrition at Team Sky at the time, and he'd worked very closely with science and sport to develop beta fuel. The idea being to give the opportunity to riders to consume a lot more carbohydrate in drink form, so they didn't have to eat as much um, during the day on the bike and i think the strategy was that in 500 milliliters of fluid there could be the same carbohydrate as four rice cakes so it meant that the riders could fuel consistently through the day and of course when the temperatures are a little bit cooler carbohydrate becomes a bit more important and with back-to-back big mountain stages carbohydrate becomes really important and i know that the fueling strategy didn't just extend to the beta fuel drink itself but also to the way they could get bottles to froom during that 80 kilometer raid i mean it really was incredibly well thought out and well beta fuel is now available to the mere mortals the likes of me and uh, i was using a lot of beta fuel during my recent ride around scotland and i have to say certainly from the point of view of my stomach i think it was thanking me because i could keep well fueled without having to stuff my face all through the day while i was on the bike um and so yeah a nice refreshing lemony lime drink as well and it's of course available with the 25 percent discount i won't test daniel with a code i'll give him another few days to revise this before we get to budapest but it's siscp25 at scienceinsport.com for 25 percent off well lionel i can tell you that my fueling at the giro will consist entirely of alpha fuel um, alpha f- fuel being pasta, pizza, and uh, do you know what I'm looking forward to? I've been talking to um, our old friend Attila Valter, um, the Hungarian rider who's going to be the star attraction really in Budapest, and we'll, we'll hear a little bit from him later. But he has been recommending again to me this stuffed cabbage that they have in uh, Budapest. He tells me that I must try that. So that that will be my starting point for the gastronomic Giro d'Italia. Excellent. Goulash and stuffed cabbage in Budapest. Just before we move on and talk about the sprinters and some of the other riders, you mentioned the transfer from Israel to, I think it was Sicily, wasn't it? Or was it Sardinia? I can't remember now. It was Sicily, wasn't it? And um, as part of the, the press corps, I was sort of shoved onto one of the charter flights 
and I found myself sitting next to Vigard Steker Lengen, who rides for UA Team Emirates, did then and still does now. And I remember that morning I had a bit of a tickly cough, and I was thinking, oh, goodness me, I'm sitting next to one of the riders on this flight for the next two and a half hours. I do I do hope that... Uh, so I was kind of face. I always had the window seat, and I was sort of always facing towards the window. I think he possibly thought I was being incredibly rude, not... Uh, not talking to him or uh well i mean he probably didn't want to talk to me to be honest but i was just trying not to pass on my tickly cough um to one of the riders um because yeah the real world conditions are that they uh once they're at the grand tours they're exposed to absolutely everything aren't they but uh he got away with it that year and finished the race in 102nd position maybe it would have been i don't know 92nd had he not had a tickly cough through the first week i don't know anyway the sprinters we've we kind of well, built the gc as yates versus carapaz are we narrowing the sprint battle down quite as uh, you know are we cutting it right back to the bone i don't think we can really well runners and riders the main sprinters are cavendish caleb ewan uh, alnon dimar this is at least according to the provisional start list um giacomo nizzolo Fibre Optic Nizzolo, as he's known on the podcast, um, Dainese of DSM and Gaviria, I would say, are the, the main ones. And there are quite a few very fast-finishing puncher-type riders as well, Mathieu van der Poel um, and Biniam Gamay are probably the names that will stand out for most people. Magnus Court, if I mean. Yeah, potentially Court. also Magnus oh, Court. Yeah. Um, Lionel, you have got a, a pink jersey today hanging up behind you as we record. I'm just curious to get your guys' thoughts on who might wear the first pink jersey of the Jura because you mentioned earlier, Lionel, this finish to Visegrad, um, which is uphill. It's about, well, just over four kilometres, I think, uphill. Um, I had a chat with Mark Cavendish about this a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he doesn't consider himself a a contender on that day he doesn't think that it's a finish that will suit pure sprinters he mentioned and um, Diego um, he mentioned Diego Ulisi as someone who could contend that day um, Gamay is certainly someone um, who will be in with a, a shout and um, I, I, I mentioned Attila Valta a minute ago as well he said that even for a climber like him um, if if the peloton arrives at the foot of that climb with the, at the right kind of speed and it's been the right kind of day hard enough then it may even be a climb where someone like Attila or someone we think of as a climber may even try something I think yes. that is a really good bet for that first pink jersey I mean also if you look at you know his compatriot Peo Bilbao when you look at how he was going in um just recently in the Tour of the Alps. It's, I think regardless, whomever takes the first pink jersey uh, to Italy, to Sicily, will not be wearing it after the, the Etna stage. I think it'll be sort of comprised, you know, being that, you know, the fact that there's a time trial the day after and, and sort of in the gray area a little bit about the type mm. of finish that it is on the first day. I don't think it's a GC guy who will walk away with, um, with the jersey that first uh, that first couple of days in in, uh, in Hungary. I mean, on the sprinters, Lionel, you mentioned the paucity of opportunities there are for the sprinters, certainly in the second half of the race. Um, Cavendish, I mean, so much has been made this year of uh, what maybe people imagine or hope is going to turn into 
uh, sort of cold war between him and Fabio Jakobsen at, at um, Quick Step Alpha Vinyl to decide or to see who's going to go into the Tour de France team. Uh, you know, th- there isn't really any conflict. Um, they're both well aware of how this story has been spun in the media. And I think they're, they're both kind of tiptoeing around that and, and conscious. And um, particularly after Jakobsen said something in, I think it was January, um, about... Um, how he expects to do the tour and they saw the sort of reaction to that and I think they're both quite cagey now when it comes to talking about it but um, uh, there, there isn't there isn't too much conflict and, and Cavendish is, is pretty happy to go to the, the Giro and he's also quite happy and he's been promised that the team hasn't been na- named yet but he's been promised decent support um, he's going to have either Michael Morku or um, Bert van Leerberger as his lead-out man, and both of both of which he's pretty happy with. Um, and he's he feels in good form. He's felt in good form really since the start of the season, right from the training camp that that team did in in the Algarve earlier this year. Cavendish has been convinced that he he was going to be competitive this year, and he has been competitive. You know, he won Milan Turin. Um, he's won a couple of other races as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he measures up to Caleb Ewan um, in particular, because, of course, Ewan was taken out of the Tour de France early last year and um, and Cavendish really, well, he capitalised on that, didn't he? He did. I mean, just on this Tour de France battle, I mean, obviously Cavendish is tied with Eddie Merckx on the 34 stage wins and the whole storyline is whether he can get one more to have the outright lead. In terms of Giro stage wins, Mark Cavendish is uh, the highest on the list of current active riders 15 stage wins in his Giro career a long way adrift of Mario Cipollini on 42 Uh, but just looking at the Giro now that we're a bit closer and and weighing up this question of whether Cavendish and Jakobsen could go to the Tour I mean Cavendish could do 11 stages of the Giro and call that job done couldn't he finish up in Reggio Emilia um, which will be almost certainly handy handy for Bologna Airport handy for Bologna Airport and um, just say that's a good 11 days of, of racing, having basically tackled the majority of the sprint opportunities. That is, of course, where Fernando Gaviria won a few years ago, Daniel. And if you remember, we were enjoying some of the food that was on offer in the press room when we saw him swagger in. I think, was that the second of two wins in a row or the first of two wins in a row? I, I can't remember uh, off the top of my head, but he certainly had the swagger of somebody who was going to rack up win after win after win. But of course, he's paid a really heavy price with contracting covid at least twice hasn't he and um you know not quite um you know punching the same hole as a sprinter as he looked that he might do he looked like he was a coming phenomenon didn't he the the real gangster move this year would be to win for a sprinter to win the stage in Reggio Emilia which is the food stage and it's the food stage primarily as a nod to parmesan cheese parmigiano reggiano um which is just one of the the delicacies of that region but the the gangster move would be to win that stage that i imagine there's probably going to be a huge round of a forma as they call it in italian of parmesan cheese given to the winner and just to with it with it under his arm head straight to the airport and fly out of of italy and well and if it's cavendish say sort of see you at the tour de france well, you'll have to check that in. I mean, those big Parmesan wheels are 40 plus kilos. So that's how cool. aero? If they're flying how aero right. are they? If though? they're flying right. Uh, 
Well, I just know if they're flying Ryanair, you know there's no way it's going to be able to, they're going to do you know bring do? that back. I'd, I'd take it to Fleshwell on next year and I'd roll it down the Murderhui <laughs> and see if it... <laughs> See if it beat the hundred, the reported 110 kilometers an hour that we quoted in our last podcast or in, in the Arrivé podcast about Fleshwell on for a, was it a double Gloucester? That's apparently the speed that they reach in the Cooper's Hill cheese roll. How would the Parmesan cheese cope with the Z-Bend on the Murderhui? I don't know. It probably oh, just goes plowing straight into somebody's house. Just on uh, those Gaviria wins, because I do remember that really well, um, the stage win was uh, in Reggio Emilia. It's the first of two in a row, but Gaviria had already won two. He'd won in Cagliari and in Messina. So he really was on a roll in that 27 Giro, which was his first Grand Tour. Um, so we'll see what sort of shape he's in as a sprinter. Uh, you asked a question about the first pink jersey and this kind of overlap of climbers. You know, if you've got Ulysses in the same conversation as potentially a I mean, a Caleb Ewan could be in the mix there. And I think that just firmly puts it in the sort of Van der Poel wheelhouse, doesn't it? I mean, he's had a, a pretty light spring in terms of race days, but really punched a, a, a big hole in terms of results, hasn't he? Really in the mix in uh, several of the classics. Um, perhaps not looking as good as his phenomenal best, but certainly in the sort of shape to uh, contend for the first pink jersey, I'd have thought. We should also mention, Lionel, that the pink jersey turns 90 this year. And we mentioned Davide Rebellin earlier in the podcast. He actually he, wore the first wore... pink jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, 90 years old. Are, are they sort of, I don't know, is it, is it turning grey around the shoulders, maybe, the pink jersey? I don't know. Uh, just on the sort of historical things, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier about the battle between uh, Ryder Hazidal, the Canadian, and... Uh, Joaquin Rodriguez back in 2012 uh, Thomas de Gent who very nearly upset the apple cart on the Stelvio at the end of that Giro 10 years ago he is back at the Giro this year um, so another rider to look out for particularly on uh, well for the breakaways I mean he's uh, the breakaway rider extraordinaire these days isn't he um, but uh, no it's a it's a, a fascinating looking Giro and I just think the with these two very difficult weeks, what's going to be interesting is how everybody negotiates that middle week where there's almost a sort of a relaxation and a, and a lull and an opportunity for the GC riders to almost sort of detrain over a few days. Um, how are they going to manage that? Yeah, it, when you take into consideration the difficulty of the first week, especially because of Blockhouse, there, sh there should be, a, I wouldn't, obviously not a settled GC, but they're very likely to let breakaways go. And a lot of riders, I think, are in this Giro to, to use those opportunities in the second week. And Lionel, since one of us did mention Astana earlier, I think it's about time for a bit of this. So dear listeners, in these two minutes, don't worry, not more, I'm going to talk to you not about all the steps or marvelous beaches, but about cycling. Yes, and especially on Astana team, Miguel Angel Lopez and the last dance of uh, Vincenzo Nibali, the shark at next tour of Italy, number 105. Well, first of all, Astana has a clear advantage of every other team on every other team, obviously, because in the car as a sport director, 
There is Beppe Martinelli. He already won nine Grand Tours with six different riders, if I'm not wrong, from Pantani to Nibali himself. So nobody, in my opinion, sees the race as Beppe. Did you understand it, dear listeners? Also, our friend Daniel Fribre, I'm sure that he definitely agrees with this. So, Miguel Angel Lopez will be the man for the GC. And with so many mountains in the parkours and only 26 cases of time trials, he can definitely arrive on the final podium in Verona, as already did in 2018, when in Rome he was third after Froome and Dumoulin and Nibali. No GC ambition for him, not possible at almost 38 years, and um, his name is not Valverde, but a role of director in the bunch, a jolly. I see this kind of role for the Shark, a stage win and a support role for Lopez. Deal with this will be the dream scenario for the Shark. And my dream scenario, dear listeners, well, obviously, the only stage that I can win is the stage number 22, the stage that fortunately doesn't exist. Daniel, you'll be pleased to know that a big parcel arrived at my house yesterday containing some clothing from MAP, our new clothing partners who joined forces with us at the start of this year. There's some T-shirts and I think a, a sweatshirt that I'll bring out for you. Um, so we've got some casual clothing to wear while we're at the Giro. Um, I wore all the MAP clothing while I was riding around Scotland a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the weather was pretty cold and wet so i didn't really get out of the deep winter gear but the deep winter gear kept me very warm and dry um much appreciated wearing the map clothing while i was cycling in scotland i'm glad they've sent some of their casual gear because i don't want you turning up to the press room in a string base layer they do very <laughs> nice base layers but they are a bit like string vests aren't they don't worry i'll keep it decent daniel i'll keep it decent now of course our collaboration with map Um, was well underway when, uh, tragically, Richard Moore passed away at the end of March. And so we have put those plans on hold slightly. We had been hoping to unveil some very, very striking designs during the Giro, um, but we will push that back to the Tour de France now. Um, I mean, Richard was so enthusiastic about our partnership with MAP. He was doing a lot of cycling, looking very svelte in the, the MAP clothing. Um, and it's really, yeah, it's... Um, It's really difficult just to um, get my head around the fact that we're proceeding with all of these plans without Richard. But um, hopefully there'll be a nod to the Buffalo when we unveil our collaboration a little bit later on this summer. I have to say, people have been asking about the map clothing over the last few weeks. We had a really um, dynamic email from uh, Willem Rusa, I think it is. I hope I pronounced your surname correctly there from flanders who designed a really striking jersey and not only did he design a striking jersey but he sent it to us with a revolving 360 degree graphic so it it revolves round in my email inbox um yeah very nicely done willem um but as i say we will be unveiling our cycling podcast plus map collaboration during the tour de france Before we move on, I should also just say that Stacy Snyder's brilliant cups and cappuccino sets and whiskey cups as well will be going on sale on Saturday, May the 7th. 
that's the second stage of the Giro d'Italia. Uh, keep an eye on our social media, cycling underscore podcast on Twitter or our website, thecyclingpodcast.com for a direct link through to Stacey's Etsy site where you'll be able to find out what time they go on sale in your time zone and click through to buy one of the cups. And as you'd expect, our new buffalo motif is appearing on the design. The cups look absolutely beautiful and uh, good luck if you're um, hoping to buy one. You may need to be quick when they go on sale. And just finally, Lionel, we have also unveiled this week our selection of wines for the Giro d'Italia. We've teamed up with Divine Cellars of London again to curate a case of six wines which represent the geography um, and the spirit of this year's uh, Giro d'Italia. They also represent the spirit of uh, Richard Moore. And we've given them a name which really pays homage to um, Richard's infamous tasting notes. Um, when it came to wine and um, every every wine was nice and hence we've called the case la selezione simpatica the nice selection and you can find out more about how to order the wine by heading to our website cyclingpodcast.com and you can also listen to an episode that i released this week in which i speak to um, greg andrews and luciana girotto of divine sellers about how we pick those wines should also say that a donation from the sales of the cases of wine and also Stacey's cups will be set aside um, with uh, some some various other um, donations that have been offered to us from some of our partners. Uh, we will set all of that aside and we will talk to Richard's family and we will come up with a um, an appropriate and deserving cause a bit later on in the year. We don't have any details on where those donations will go at the moment, but we will make sure that it's uh, a fitting recipient. Now back to the important stuff, Daniel, the food stage, the Giro's innovation. I think they've been listening to the podcast, uh, just how much food uh, features in our coverage as we're traveling around Italy. They've chosen the Reggio Emilia stage, but as I said at the start, really every stage is a food stage for me. I really look forward to um, sampling what Italy has to offer as we go around. Um, but in terms of the food and the culture of Italy, what should we be looking forward to this year? Well, I think I'll, I'm going to defer to Brian on this, um, my fellow plastic Italian, but I'm, I think I'm going to be clenching everything, uh, Lionel, whenever when the wine list is handed to Brian every night um, clenching well not least clenching the purse strings of the podcast um, but we're going to we're going to ration we're going to limit the wine chat um, because as, among other things Brian is also a um, what, well he's a, a vineyard manager manager really aren't you Brian of, uh, of a Californian vineyard so and we will have to put a bit of a limit on the wine chat this year but we will be very much looking forward to sampling the delights of, of every region, um, not just the stuffed cabbage in, in Hungary, not just the Parmesan cheese. I mean, I'm looking forward as well, in particular, to the area that we called last year Frontierland, the, the extreme northeast of Italy, uh, Friuli region, which um, really fascinated me last year with the history and the, the gastronomy as well. And we're going up there again and crossing into Slovenia. So if I had to pick out a highlight, it would be there. But I'm also looking forward to Sicily because I've complained about not having the best experiences in Sicily in the past. But we're going to a part of Sicily this year that I really, really um, am excited about in the on the 
um, east side, and in fact, Brian's talked to me a lot about this part of Sicily because he is a, a Sicily lover. Um, so that is an, another thing that um, was whetting my appetite already when the Giro was unveiled. The Giro route was unveiled. Yeah, I can say if, you know, I, I'm coming very well prepared. I just updated my restaurant guides for for Italy. Uh, I have a specific one I use that's uh, made by the well-respected Italian newspaper La Repubblica. And it actually geolocates you and puts you sort of in, into the knowledge of the nearest good restaurant. And I always remember the first time I started using that was probably 15 years ago uh, during the Tirreno Adriatico. And I always ended up by way of that um, guide at the same restaurant as uh, often Gianni Mura, uh, my long-time hero of uh, riding about cycling and, and all things Italian. And uh, if you always knew if you ended up at a restaurant where Gianni Muda was, you, you found the right place. So in the, in the spirit of, of him, and I'll, I'll with great care take it upon me to, to find those good restaurants for all of us. And as you always know, in Italy, you can eat extremely well at, at any kind of budget, really. This reminds me, um, you've jogged my memory, Brian, because I'm reading currently a collection of writings by Gianni Muda on cycling. And he, he dedicated a whole article on one occasion to Cassolet, Lionel. And oh. I will share this with you and we will discuss this. He had some quite forthright views on Cassolet. Uh, Gianni Mura, you mentioned um, seeing him at the Giro d'Italia. His great love was the Tour de France, of course. And in fact, he was, he was kind of the opposite to me. He was sort of poo-pooed Italian food and culture in, and talked more about... Um, French culture, but he also had a he had a food column in La Repubblica with his wife, Absolutely, didn't he? Yeah. Um, Gianni Mura, of course, the, the sort of doyen of Italian cycling writers who who sadly died a couple of years ago. I'm looking forward to a proper Neapolitan pizza. They are different to other areas in Italy, aren't they? They're they're not like the Romana base with a big sort of thin crispy base. They're much more. Um, a denser, chewier base with a, a lovely crust. Uh, you'll see, Daniel, next to my uh, Malia Rosa on the wall, I've also got the, the number 10 Diego Maradona shirt, the Napoli shirt, which I will bring with me to uh, for my morning we, run got some, in Napoli. Yeah, we've got some big decisions to make on that day in Naples, um, Lionel, because it's a bit of a whistle-stop tour of Naples the race sort of the previous day it's a long way from Naples then we travel a couple of hours to get to the sort of suburbs of Naples and then as soon as the stage is over then we go another two hours north so we, we haven't got a lot of time in that area but I was threatening to take you up Pompeii wasn't I and um, we're staying we're staying very close to Pompeii um, the, the evening before we, we may take a bit of a cultural detour that morning but it would also be nice to sort of visit some of the sacred sites, locations associated with Diego Maradona? Uh, I mean, this means there's no room for my uh, make-it-yourself pizza restaurant experiences there, which I've found online. But uh, maybe there'll be another one somewhere else. Well, it is UNESCO-protected, Lionel, so they might want to tell you to keep your hands off. Some big, grubby, not Watford fingerprints all over the dough. Yeah, I can't see that going down too well. Well, chaps, there's no doubt going to be a lot of cultural chat a lot of uh, talk uh, about food gastron- gastronomy wine um and until we start getting complaints anyway um along the way but lionel uh, our coverage in general we're going to be well we're going to be at the giro throughout aren't we we, were, we arrive on wednesday the race starts on friday this year of course there are three rest days because of that long transfer from 
hungry. Daily episodes, um, three kilometer zero episodes a week. The first one, um, this is unprecedented for us. The first one is going to come out before the race even starts, isn't it? And it is going to be about um, the rider I described as a sort of prodigal son um, on that first weekend of the Giro because he's Hungarian and he wore the pink jersey last year and his name is Attila Walter and here's a little taster of what's coming in that episode from Attila. The, like more than half of the people they were saying my name and now we are talking about thousands in Italy and it was some medium mountain stages uh, with nothing nothing special and people still were saying my name in in cities that I, I don't even know existed before. And so this is the pictures, which is, uh, which is coming to my mind. But yeah, I, I basically, I remember all the, all the parts, the strange things, which I, I, I think sometimes that how could I sleep, uh, after the first day and I was sleeping quite easy. I went home, uh, I went back to the hotel. I, I, we talked with the team with the teammates, we opened the champagne, we had the really good food and a little celebration. And then I went to the room, then I spoke with my roommate, uh, Lars Vandenberg was my roommate and we were just talking and yeah, before midnight I went to sleep and I think after 20 minutes I fall asleep and yeah, next day I was like, how, how could I fall asleep? It's, you know, uh, because my mind was still going and going and going, but I knew that I had to sleep if I want to wear the, the jersey next day. That's right, Daniel. Appropriately, I guess, our Giro coverage kicks off with Kilometre Zero on Friday morning. And then join us in Budapest on Friday evening for our first stage recap. One other little side story that I'm going to be following during this Giro, Daniel, with a bit of your help, hopefully. Um, the two, two of the three Italian wildcard teams that are taking part this year, uh, Bardiani and Dronehopper, both really long-serving teams, uh, give or take the odd gap here or there, but you can trace um, drone hoppers routes back to 1981. This is Gianni Savio's team, of course, and uh, Bardiani all the way back to 1982, I think it was. So teams that have been around for 40 years. Bardiani started off as Termalan, and uh, over the years they've been Navigare, Scrigno, Panaria. Uh, Colnago and more recently Bardiani and uh, we'll see which of the three wildcard teams performs best in I've got I'm coming up with a sort of alternative classification for visibility and the Aolo Colmetta team has a link to our title sponsor Super Sapiens as well because uh, they announced a partnership for this season at the beginning of the year so we may well hear from some of their riders in our Super Sapiens slots as well I thought they were sponsored by Burger King Aren't they? They are. They have got a sponsorship with Burger King. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How unzero of them? Yeah, they they are. Lionel, you're not telling whoppers. You're not telling <laughs> lies. They are sponsored by Burger King. Oh, very good. I think on that note, we should probably start yes. packing our bags for Budapest. We 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 definitely should, Lionel. Just as a as a final note, I will say again, and I know I speak for you as well, Lionel, in thanking. All the listeners for the incredible support we continue to get um, since since um, Richard's tragic passing um, a month ago. And um, yeah, that's continued throughout the last week and in response to the various announcements we've made about our Jiro recovery. So again, a heart, heartfelt thank you. 
Well, thank you, Daniel. I'll see you at the airport on Wednesday morning for our flight over to Hungary. Brian, I'll see you midway through the race, and uh, we'll well we'll 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 make sure that uh, there's plenty plenty of money on the cycling podcasts prepay wine card for your arrival. You'll you'll see Brian in Reggio Emilia. He'll be the chat with a massive forma of Parmesan cheese under his arm. As always. Well, I look forward to it. Thanks, chaps. Thank you. Thank you, chaps. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.